I'm not sure you've ever thought about this before, but there are many things in life that we need to survive that apart from them, we just flat out wouldn't survive. Like for instance, and, and, and these things, we, we don't think much about them. Like for instance, um, oxygen. We need oxygen to survive. Without oxygen, we are, we are done. How much do you think about that? You do, okay? Well, good. Maybe some people have lung problems. Think about that, some. We need to breathe. How many of you consciously think about how you need to breathe? Some of you do. Some of you do, okay. My illustration's crashing here, people. All right, All right. I need to think about a good one. Here, here's a good one. How many of you think that the structures in your home need to stand Otherwise, if they fall down, they're going to they're gonna crash you and you're going to smash. Some of you? Okay. Maybe that's for cluster. Okay, let me, let me come with some more. How about, how about this one? How many of you really think about the whole continent topology of the earth needs to stay as it is so like the earth doesn't sink down into the sea? Like, like my son was telling me yesterday, he's been watching some creation videos, and if the earth was perfectly flattened around, it would be two, and a half, two miles deep in water all around the earth. How many of you think that, boy, the North America needs to stay above water? I think I got, I think I got you on that one. I think I got you on that one. How about the atmosphere? Without the atmosphere, the earth would be cold like the moon. Without the atmosphere, deadly irradiation would come and we'd have to like duck meteors because few of them would burn up. None of them would burn up. How many of you think about that? Sometimes. The sun needs to keep burning. If the sun would stop burning, we would have no energy and we would be pretty cold and we would die quickly. How often do you think about that? Okay, here's one. I think you'll catch this one for sure. No, no like zero. Jared, you probably thought about this one. How many of you think that uh, protons need to continue to repel protons and neutrons need, or, or electrons need to be attracted? And, and if that didn't happen, <laughs> we'd like... We'd like dissolve. I think we just we'd be done. How many of you think about that? <laughs> All the time. Huh? <laughs> um, how about our bodies? Our bodies need to regenerate themselves. Skin cells, particularly, within uh, whatever two to three months, our skin is completely regenerated, completely changed. And um, you know, apart from that, if our skin cells didn't regenerate, we'd be down to bone, flesh. It would just how many of you think about that on a daily basis? Not, not very much, but we need these things in order to live. And, and just as physically we need, there are some things spiritually as well, I think that we really need, and if not, we will die. Like, for instance, God's patience. We need God's patience and long-suffering to survive. The psalmist says in Psalm 130, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If God would mark our iniquities today, none of us would stand. We would be dead. How often do you think about that? I think some of us we do. It's a core reality. How about we need God's life-giving Spirit to dwell in us? Job 34, 14 and 15. If God should determine to do so, if He should gather to Himself His Spirit and His breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. If God would take away His spirits from our lives, we'd be dust. We'd be done that quick. How often do you think about that? 
and pertinent to our text today, we need a high priest to intercede for us. We need a high priest. Hebrews 7, verse 25, we left off last week. Therefore, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. If we didn't have a high priest before the throne of God, how would we be saved? We need a priest. And how often do you think about that? That we need a priest. And we have a priest, his name is Jesus. I think probably in recent days, perhaps you've been thinking more about it than historically you have. But my guess is that most of us, until just a few months ago, since we hit Hebrews chapter 7, hadn't really thought about that a lot. I mean, some we probably have, but do you realize that Hebrews is really the only book in the Bible that speaks about Jesus being a high priest? The only one. So we've been lingering here. We've been uh, just thinking about what it means that Jesus is a high priest. It's good for us to think how important that is even to our, our lives. Well, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Our text is the last three verses in chapter 7. So open up to Hebrews chapter 7. Chapter 6 won't work. Hebrews chapter 7. I want to read for us the last three verses. 26, 27, 28. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Once again, we find in these three verses of Hebrews, the writer talking about how Jesus is better than the priests. I've entitled my message this morning, A Better Priesthood, Part 3. We've had a better priesthood, Part 1. We've had a better priesthood, Part 2. We've had a better priesthood, Part 3. And there's a a good reason why I've kept these titles really the the same and repetitive. And the reason for that comes because in chapter 8, verse 1, The writer says this, alright, the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest. We have a high priest like I've been describing for you, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. We have this high priest, and this high priest is better. We have a better priesthood. It's been the main point of our section. Part 1 began, my my message anyway, in chapter 7, verse 11. We saw the priesthood of Jesus is a perfect priesthood, unlike the Levitical priesthood. It said if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priest to arise, according to Psalm 110, verse 4, according to the order of Melchizedek, and not according to the order of Aaron. It's because that order of priesthood was not perfect, but the order of Christ is perfect. We've seen how the priesthood of Jesus is a royal priesthood. Verse 14, it's evident that our Lord, who was a priest, was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Priests didn't come from Judah. They didn't come from the kingly line. They came from the Levitical line. shows we have a different kind of priesthood, but the priesthood we have now is a royal priesthood. We've seen how the priesthood of Jesus is a worthy priesthood. Verse 16, Jesus has become a priest 
not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, right? Not because he was a son of a son of a son of someone who was son of Levi. No, but according to the power of an indestructible life. His life was worthy of being a priest. We saw how the hope that we have in the priesthood of Christ is better than the hope that the Jews had in the law. Verse 18 and 19, the law is set aside because, verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, through the priesthood of Jesus, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. His hope is better. We saw also how an oath is better. Jesus became a priest by an oath. None of the other priests became priests by an oath. They became priests according to the law. And the oath is better. Verse 22, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. And so much more is what it says in verse 22. Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. His covenant is a guaranteed covenant because it's been made by an oath. makes the priesthood of Jesus better. Also, the priesthood of Jesus is a forever priesthood. 23, 24, and 25. The, the former priests were, lots of them, exist in greater numbers because they are prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. He's a permanent priest. And today we have three last characteristics of the priesthood of Jesus, which is better. I have one point for each passage. My first point is this. Jesus is a pure priest. He is a pure priest. My son, SR, did some animation. He's learning this animation software, so you'll enjoy that. He is a pure priest. Let me read verse 26 for you again. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted among the heavens. We have five words here, five phrases that describe the purity of Jesus Christ. First of all, Jesus is holy. As it says there, He is is holy. That means He's perfectly clean. Totally without sin. Think about the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus was up there on the Mount with His disciples and... and, uh, the, the veil of His humanity was begun taken away. We get to see the true Jesus who He was shining through, bright and brilliant, holy. When you look at the throne of God, you see holy, holy, holy. It's a brightness. That's what came through Jesus. That's who He is. What is said of God is said of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus isn't holy because He's forgiven and cleansed like we are holy. No, He is holy because that is what He is by nature. Jesus is a pure priest. Second characteristic there, he says he's holy, he's also innocent. You might translate that blameless. The idea here carries the idea of a a pure life. There's nothing in Jesus that you would ever identify as being sinful. It's not that Jesus is forgiven or declared innocent in the court of law. No, Jesus never sinned, was found completely blameless. One of the most interesting things that you can study in the Scripture is when... uh, when Jesus is standing before Pilate and when he's standing before the religious leaders, they're trying to find an accusation against him and they couldn't find anything. And even Pilate at one point said to the crowd, you want to crucify him, but what has he done? What evil has he done? And they just said, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate takes the water and he washes his hands and says, I'm innocent in this matter, basically saying, this man is innocent, but you guys want to put him to death. That's who Jesus is. He is innocent. Third characteristic, he is undefiled. It says right there in verse 26. 
Now, one of the difficulties of living in the world is that those in the world can influence us toward evil. And priests particularly were susceptible to this. As they were around, those people could, could even touch a priest and he would become defiled. A priest couldn't touch a dead body that would defile him. But think about Jesus. He was so pure, so undefiled. When he touched dead bodies, they came to life. Because they didn't influence them, he influenced the other way around. The sinful world had no effect upon Jesus, untouched completely. One commentator described it like this. Jesus is the physician who works among the sick at the time of an epidemic, but is himself immune. Jesus. Undefiled. He's also separated from sinners. Now, to be sure, Jesus shared in our humanity, but he never participated in our sin. He was known as a friend of sinners because... He came to seek and save that was lost, but He never engaged in sin Himself. And when it came to sin, Jesus kept His full distance from it. He was utterly distinct from us in that sense. Totally apart from sin. In fact, the book of Hebrews speaks several times about how He is uh, apart from sin, how He is sinless. It says in um, chapter 2, verse 18, since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus was tempted but came through without sin. also speaks about 1, verse 15, he's been tempted in all things as we are. Chapter 4, verse 15, and yet we are without sin. That is Jesus. He is separated from sinners. He's distinct from us. And this is just building a case about how more worthy Jesus is, how pure he is. He is also, as it says, they're exalted above the heavens mentioned several times in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says that Jesus has taken His seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. In chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's no higher position to be offered anybody in the universe than what Jesus owns right there at the right hand of God the Father all over everything, exalted above the heavens. And at that position, it says in Hebrews chapter 1, that all the angels of God worship Him. As I mentioned last week in Revelation chapter 5, I think I mentioned, maybe I didn't mention it last week, but it speaks about how worship is to the Lord and to the Lamb who are upon their thrones. That's a picture of our, our King Jesus. He's pure, innocent, holy, righteous, altogether different than we are. I'd encourage you to put that picture of Jesus into your mind. It's one that's perfectly pure and innocent, unlike we'll see in verse 27 about the high priests of the Old Testament. But you might find a chance to use it. I, I think about this week. Last week I preached on um, the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. On Monday morning we had a ring at the door, ding bong, and we came out there and Jehovah Witnesses visited us. And... Uh, saw as soon as I discerned what was going on I went out and talked with him and this older gentleman had his, had his Bible out and he said yes we're just going through the neighborhood sharing about the kingdom of God and we're, we're sharing a verse with all your neighbors and we're sharing John 17 verse 3 that's what he said this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent and uh, what do you think I'm going to tell them I didn't say, hey, I'm a pastor and I just preached John 17 yesterday. I didn't say that. I said, oh, that's very interesting. I said, uh, 
you folks, you don't believe that Jesus is God, do you? And he was kind of silent. I think he was taken back a little bit. I said, you're right here in John 17. Have you ever considered John 17, verse 1, where Jesus is praying for God's glory, praying for glory? And it says in 17, verse 5, he's praying for the glory that he had with God before the world was. Have you considered that? And, and, and have you considered that Isaiah says that um, my glory I will give to no other, but he's giving glory to Jesus? How, how is it that Jesus is, you say he's not God, he is God. And if you've ever interacted with a Jehovah Witness, all right, this, this is what they always do. Oh, oh, well, well, let's go over here to Colossians. And in Colossians it says, I said, no, 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 let's not go to Colossians. You took us to John 17. Let's look right here at John 17. This is my glory you should give to another. And at that point, um, maybe this is where I thought last week, at that point I said, now think about it. Here's all the glory of Jesus. You think about uh, Revelation chapter 5 and you see God, and you see the Lamb. And it is, it is all heaven saying that, that to, the, to, the, to the Lord God and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion and power forever and ever. Jesus Christ should be worshipped right there with God the Father. How is it you say Jesus isn't God? And if you know Jehovah's Witnesses, he will say, well, let's turn over to Colossians, because in Colossians they have... And so we talked about that, but Avon, you, you saw and witnessed that thing, and they, they left pretty quickly, I think. And, um, you know, I've dealt with Jehovah's Witnesses enough to know that they're not interested. They're not interested in really ga- engaging the text. They just want to do their, their thing, what they are. But I, I say for you also, if you would really think about Jesus in this way, you might have opportunities even to speak with other people. Maybe people won't come and ring at your doorbell, but maybe even at work when people use his name in vain, maybe you can say, um, you know, my pastor preached about Jesus on Sunday. There's Jesus who name your vote. Can I tell you about what he's like? Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sin, exalted above the heavens. I don't know. You might have an opportunity to use that, and I just encourage you to meditate on these things so that they're quick on your lips to be able to, to share them. Now, one of the things about this that He is pure, the whole point of it comes really in verse 26 of how it says it is fitting for us to have such a high priest. In other words, such a pure high priest fits our need exactly. The NIV says it well. It says such a high priest meets our need. In other words, He is suitable to bring us to God. A holy, innocent, pure priest is the one who meets our needs and can able to bring us to God when you go on vacation and visit the Grand Canyon, you want a guide to take you down to the floor of the canyon. When you're white river rafting, you want a guide to take you through to miss the ultimate dangerous parts of the rocks that could tip you. When you explore a cave, you want a guide who's been there before. And so also when you come to God, you need a suitable guide who's going to bring you there. And Jesus Christ is such a one. He's able to fit our need exactly to bring us to God because He is pure. Unlike so many of the former high priests, remember I talked about this a few weeks ago? Nadab and Abihu were not holy and God killed them. They couldn't bring people to God. Sons of Samuel were unholy. The priests in Jesus' day were unholy and they couldn't pull people to God. Ultimately, though, Jesus Christ is the one that can pull us to God because He's a pure priest. My second point, verse 27 here, Jesus isn't only a pure priest, He's also, I'm calling it a a final priest. Um, I'm just taking one of these phrases here. It's interesting here in verse 27 that there's so many different things. You can pull a lot of it 
stems off of verse 26, so he's a pure priest, but there is a sense where he's a, the final priest as well. Let me just read it for you. Jesus, who, talking about, does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of others or the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. By this verse, Jesus, the writer is simply saying that Jesus is far different than any priest that ever walked upon the earth. They all had to offer up sacrifices for themselves before they would ever be able to offer up sacrifices for others. But Jesus was different. He didn't have to offer up a sacrifice for Himself because He's holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. So imagine, imagine the circumstance of an Old Testament saint who sins and knows he needs to make it right with God. And so he brings this lamb and brings it before the priest and he confesses sin and gives the lamb to the priest and says, I have sinned before God. I need to make atonement. Will you sacrifice this lamb for me? And, and the priest receives this lamb. And he says, sure, no problem. Takes the lamb, ties it down. But before he sacrifices it, he goes over and takes a lamb for himself and sacrifices it for God and says, oh God, receive this offering. And then he comes over here and, and sacrifices. Now, that didn't really happen. Okay, they didn't, Old Testament priests didn't have to offer a sacrifice every time for every sin that they would offer. But the principle of that is definitely there. They needed to be cleansed first with an offering before they were qualified to offer an offering. As it says over in chapter 9, verse 7, look at this. Into the Holy of Holies, it says in verse 7, only the high priest enters once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers. You could even put here, first for himself, and then secondly, as the Old Testament describes, for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. He needs to offer a sacrifice for himself first before he offers it for the people. It says here in uh, verse 27 that the high priest had to do this on a daily basis. Who does not need to daily, like those high priests, offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Now there's some discussion here about what it means that he daily offered up sacrifices. Nowhere in the Old Testament was it prescribed that a priest had to offer up a sacrifice for himself first every day. It did say that on Yom Kippur, seventh day and tenth month. So there's some discussion about what, what does this mean that they offered up daily. They, probably they did. The time of uh, the Jewish people here, there's probably daily sacrifices that they offered. Maybe this was the morning sacrifice that was offered every day as well as the evening sacrifice. We're not exactly sure what sacrifice it is. But the point is the same, that the priest, in order to offer a sacrifice for others, need to have a sacrifice for himself. Now, at this point, you ought to object. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. How is it that his sacrifice is accepted when he's a sinner offering it up, and my sacrifice, I need someone who's pure and holy to be able to offer it up. Someone who's forgiven. You understand what I'm talking about? In other words, he can't offer up a sacrifice because he's a sinner. Why could he offer up the first sacrifice in the first place if he's a sinner also? Why does he need to be pure in order to do this? And you just start thinking and you've got, you've just got problems and difficulty. If you need to have someone pure to offer up your sacrifice for you, then what about his first one? Well, anyway, that's the problem for all Old Testament sacrifices. Those who offered them were sinful in need of forgiveness, but... Not so the sacrifice of Christ. 
Because Jesus doesn't need to offer up sacrifices daily like, like them. His life was pure. He had no sin. There was no need to sacrifice for Himself. In and of itself, that makes His sacrifice way better than any Old Testament sacrifice. It makes His sacrifice a fitting sacrifice. It makes His sacrifice a final sacrifice. It makes Him a, a final priest. Listen, but it gets even better than that. Look, He... He didn't merely offer up an animal in smoke. He offered up Himself. Verse 27, there at the end. Because this He did once for all when He offered up Himself. Hope you see how great the sacrifice of Christ was. The priests in Israel offered up animals. But Christ offered up Himself. You know, it's, it's a little bit like the, the story of the pig and and chicken. We got men cook breakfast over here right afterwards. I know that I've talked to several of you who said, yeah, I'm really excited for a potluck today. It's men cook breakfast. The ladies, enjoy yourselves today as the men will be up here busily. But the pig and the chicken, we're talking about what they're going to have for breakfast, right? You've heard the story before? And the, the chicken says, hmm, how about ham and eggs? And the pig then pointed out, well, that's fine for you. It's a small donation on your part, but it's total sacrifice for me to have ham and eggs. That's for Jesus. It was total sacrifice for Him. The priests, they could live to see another day. Jesus offered up Himself. And apart from His resurrection, He wouldn't live to see another day. But He did. He sacrificed Himself, totally committed. It was Himself, pure, spotless Son of God. Think about how great the sacrifice was. See, it, it, it's one thing to offer up a bug to sacrifice. No big deal, right? I mean, little boys with magnifying glasses on summer days offer up ants as sacrifices all the time, right? No big deal. Peter's not going to get after you to complain about the killing of bugs. But let's, let's go up the food chain a little bit here. What, what about an animal? The difference between sacrificing a grasshopper and sacrificing a lamb, isn't there? There are some people who believe that such things are immoral <clears throat> and wrong. People are vegetarians because they think that it's wrong to sacrifice that. And, and we know something about animals. I mean, we, we think it's wrong to eat dog, don't we? Something about a dog that just, you know, we don't eat that just because it's, I don't know. Or horse, there's a big stink about eating horses. At least some here in America and other places not. So animals, it's like some people, whatever, sacrifice is not. But, but almost everyone in the world today would, would agree that offering up a human being would be even worse. I mean, few upon the planet wouldn't agree that such actions are, are wrong. I mean, it's wrong to offer up humans. And, and we read in horror as we think of the human sacrifices that the Aztec culture offered or the sacrifice of the Moloch worshippers who took their little babies and offered them up. And we cringe in horror at the abortion industry today where children are sacrificed for the sake of lifestyle. That's what it is. They sacrifice their children so that women can have a career or can avoid embarrassment. Listen, but it's another thing for God to be sacrificed. I mean, a bug's one thing, an animal's another, human's another. But God to be sacrificed is yet another thing, and that's what took place on the cross. Jesus Christ, the holy, innocent, undefiled one, 
was sacrificed upon the cross 2,000 years ago on a cross in Jerusalem. It's better than any animal sacrifice ever could have been, and it makes the worth of His sacrifice far greater than any sacrifice that was ever offered. In 1 Peter 1.19, Peter's describing the, the precious blood of Jesus, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of the Messiah. He's talking about just a. It's, you take the blood of a of a perfect spotless lamb and you you exponentially ramp it up. See how great his sacrifice was. And in this way, Jesus only needed to offer one sacrifice. Look what it says at the end of verse 27. This he did once for all when he offered up himself. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ was so great. It only had to be offered once. No need for repeated sacrifices. It took place in the Old Testament. And that, by the way, is going to be a large theme of Hebrews chapter 10. In fact, turn over there. Look at this. I just want to show you how much this once-for-all sacrifice comes up. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus Christ offered once for all. Verse 11, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But He, having offered one sacrifice for sins, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. Verse 14, By one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ never needs to be repeated. It's one sacrifice. And this, by the way, is the abomination that takes place in the Catholic Church each and every Mass. I have here a catechism for adults, Roman Catholic Catechism. It talks about the Mass. It says, what is the Mass? The Mass is the sacrifice of the cross, the sacrifice of the body and blood of Jesus Christ offered in an unbloody manner under the appearance of bread and wine. Jesus Christ offered again without blood in the appearance of bread and wine. They believe that the priest says his things and the bread and the the juice, which we're going to partake of later, the Lord's Supper, becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. It transubstantiates, it changes substance, so that when it is taken, it is Jesus Christ being sacrificed again. How about this? Question number 10. Is the Mass a true sacrifice? Yes, it contains the elements of a true sacrifice. Priest and victim gift and offering by the separate consecration of the bread and wine which symbolizes death, Jesus, the victim of the Calvary sacrifice, becomes truly present at the altar. What's the difference between the sacrifices? The difference is the sacrifice of the cross was a bloody sacrifice, while the sacrifice of the Mass is an unbloody one. And Hebrews 10 is like totally different than that like doesn't even compute. I remember reading Hebrews chapter 10 in service one time and uh, a former Catholic said, oh, that's so good to hear. We don't need to sacrifice Jesus again. It was one sacrifice for all time, never needing to be repeated. 
His sacrifice was sufficient to atone for the sins of, of those who had sinned before Christ died. Hebrews 9.15, look at this. He says, For this reason, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place, that is, Christ has died upon the cross for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. That, that is, the, the sins of David, who, who sinned a thousand years before. The sins of, of Moses, who, who sinned 1,400 years before Jesus came. And the sins of Abraham, who was 2,000 years before Jesus came. That the sins previously committed... That's why that was for the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant that those who have been called like Abraham and like Moses and like David may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. The sacrifice of Jesus was sufficient to atone for the sins committed before. And the sacrifice of Jesus not only paid for their sins, but also paid for sins that were going to be committed later. His sacrifice sufficient to atone for sins after the cross. Think about it. When have your sins been committed? This morning, last week, last month, last year, 10 years ago, 30 years ago, dare I say, Dad, 70 years ago. But still, even 70 years ago is, whatever, 1900 years after the cross of Christ. And if our sins can be forgiven today, and they can, they were forgiven by a sacrifice that took place 2,000 years ago. And our sins we're going to commit have been forgiven by faith upon the cross of Christ. How, how, great the, how great the sacrifice of Jesus is. There's nothing you can do today to improve upon the work of Christ. There are no more sacrifices needed. He's a final priest because He offered the final sacrifice. You can't do anything to make up for your sins. And sadly, we often live, though, like we can make up for our sins. I mean, think about the scenario. I heard someone describe this recently, and I'll try to describe it for you. Someone, someone sins, and then they feel really bad about it. And so, what do they try to do? They try to make it up to God somehow, or they try to prove it, or say, God, I'll, I'm sorry for my sin. I promise I'll read the Bible tomorrow. Or, or they make it, say, I'll, I'll really, I'll, I'll pray much harder than ever before. Or, you know what, I'll just, I'll just be really sorry for my sins. God, I, I, I hate my sins. And, and, and the issue is, well, how long are you going to be sorry? You're going to be sorry for like a day maybe? Like walk around and wallow in your sin for a day? Or maybe three days and finally at some point the, the freedom lifts? Right? Like you've done everything you need to do so that God then can be satisfied. Yeah, you sinner, you sinned, and yeah, I'm forgiving Jesus, but you've got to pay for it. That's the whole premise of penance in the Catholic Church as well, right? You commit a sin, the Father forgives you, and then you have to go out and say these prayers so as to show your genuineness of your repentance, doing these things. And such, I believe, is an insult to the cross of Christ. Doing these things, you, think you somehow aid in your justification. You're doing it yourself, but that's not... Christ Jesus, one sacrifice for all time, it is all there. The work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, sufficient to atone for all of our sins. I heard this week of uh, 
man named David Dixon, who was a Scottish minister, 1600s. And uh, he was on his deathbed. He'd been a pastor for, I don't know how many years, but he'd been a pastor's life. And uh, someone was talking to him about his life. And, and here's, here's some of the last words he said. It's great perspective. He says, I've taken all of my good deeds and all of my bad and I've cast them in a heap before the Lord and fled from both and betaken myself to the Lord Jesus and in Him I have sweet peace. Takes his good and bad. He doesn't weigh them and say, I think my good's going to be better. He takes his good and his bad and he gets rid of them and lays them at the feet of Jesus and just pleads his help and his mercy. And he said, his dying breast, that he had sweet peace in Jesus. And that's the great reality of what we'll celebrate here in a few moments at Lord's Supper. Celebrating the once for all sacrifice of Christ, never need to be repeated again. Remember the time when Jesus died for us. We don't sacrifice Him again, as the Catholics profess. Rather, we remember His sacrifice. He said, do this in remembrance of Me. And so that's what we do. Well, let's transition now to my last point. Jesus is not only a pure priest, not only a final priest, He's also, verse 28, a perfect priest. And again here, what's interesting about verse 28, lots of themes coming up here even summarizing lots of what has been said already. There'll be some review here, but again, we'll pound into our minds that Jesus Christ is a perfect priest. Verse 28, The law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after loss points a son made perfect forever. Contrasts abound in this verse, comparing Jesus to the old priests and saying how much better priest Jesus is. First of all, there's a contrast between who is appointed to the office of priest. The law appointed men as high priests. Regular guys like you and me became priests. But the word of the oath appoints the Son made perfect forever. Men, the Son of God. There's a contrast in abilities. The priests appointed by the law were weak men, but the priest appointed by an oath is the perfect Son The priests of the Old Covenant were weak, not in the sense that they lacked physical strength. Some of them probably were pretty strong. But they were weak in the sense that they were sinful. And they were flawed. And they had blemishes and needed forgiveness. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, was sinless and blameless and completely able to approach God on His own merits. In that way, Jesus Christ could be said to be strong using this metaphor, we can say that He's perfect or He's pure, like verse 26 speaks about. There's also how they were appointed. The priests of the Old Testament were appointed by law. It says the law appointed men as high priests. That is, they, they appealed to historic proclamation from God, historical precedents. They were appointed according to need. The Old Covenant needed priests to fulfill their actions. Somebody had to do it to fulfill their function. And so it just kind of propagates itself. We need priests. The law says priests, and so here it goes. It just kind of propagates itself. But Jesus, on the other hand, is appointed by an oath, is what it says. But the word of the oath, that is the oath of God, and we saw this already in chapter 7, verse 21. Here's the oath. God has sworn. He will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. And there's the oath. And the oath is so much better than the law. 
With an oath comes honor, I believe. With an oath comes dignity and appointment and authority. There's a big difference between the, uh, the policeman who joins the force after he's gone through the police academy and the head of the FBI. One works because he needs to fulfill a role. The other comes to work as head over the agency because he's selected by the president. And there's a, there's a dignity and an honor and an oath and a power in there that comes by the appointed one rather than the one who just goes according to law to become a priest. And I say this is the difference between Jesus Christ and the priests of the Old Testament. They're appointed by law, but Jesus was appointed by an oath that will, will never change. Listen, in every way, the appointment of Jesus Christ is better than any other priest. And I say he's a perfect priest, which comes down here at the end of verse 28. The word of the oath which came after the law, because that came in the time of David, it's Psalm 110, 400 years after the law, prophesying of Christ when he would actually live, be made a, a priest. But now we see that he's perfect. It says here at the end of verse 28 that he is made perfect forever. Now don't think that this means to imply that he was imperfect before, like he was imperfect, but now he's been made perfect forever. As one time he wasn't right, and now he is right. Rather think of perfection here as made fully mature and complete forever. We dealt with this phrase already once in Hebrews chapter 10, verse, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, where it said, It was fitting for him, or it was proper for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect Jesus, the author of their salvation, through sufferings. In other words, Jesus coming into the flesh, suffering and walking blamelessly through the sufferings was the process of Him becoming perfect. He was made perfect through His sufferings. He was made perfect through His experience of life. And so we have a perfect priest, which means a better priesthood. And so I want you to reflect this morning upon your high priest. He's pure. He's the final one needed. No more need for other priests. And He is the perfect priest. There's no other way to God but through Him. And may we come to God through Him. Let, let's pray and then we'll transition to the Lord's Supper. Lord, I, I don't think we think enough about how we need a priest. I know I hadn't until I started exposing through Hebrews. Because if we can think so much about priests in the Catholic Church which which aren't needed. And we can just easily say we don't need a priest. But no, we do need a priest. We need a mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. We need an advocate who can plead our case before the Father. I thank You, O Lord, that in Jesus we have our perfect, final, pure priest who can bring us to God perfectly. And I, I pray, Lord, that we as a church body would always just look to Him and look to the work that He did upon the cross and rejoice in that. May it stir our hearts greatly in these things. May You change us to realize that His sacrifice was once for all. And that when we sin, certainly we're sorrowful. We hate our sin. God, we don't need to pay for it at all. And it frees us up we have died to sin. Shall we still live in it? May it never be. It frees us up to, to be slaves of righteousness and not slaves of 
unrighteousness. So help us, O Lord, I pray as we come to You in this way You told us to, the Lord's Supper, that You would cleanse our hearts. I pray, Lord, that You would cause us even to search our hearts right now. So we come to the Lord's Supper, how important it is for us to come in a, in a pure manner, when it's worthy of You. It's not because we're worthy in ourselves, but because we're looking to the worthy One. We pray that You would uh, bring sin to mind, that we would confess our sin. We'd agree with You that indeed our sin is wrong and we need You. So strengthen us even now. God, to celebrate the supper, looking and reflecting upon the cross of Christ. May we examine our own hearts, O Lord. Take the bread and take the cup in a pleasing way to you as we worship you in this way beyond singing beyond praying beyond hearing the word preached beyond doing whatever we are now receiving um, receiving nourishment for our souls as we commune with you in Jesus name we pray Amen well we celebrate the Lord's Supper every four or six weeks or so I know some men are going to come and, and distribute the elements this is for those who are Believers in Christ, 